0: Our next speaker is Deborah Harrison, who has made the study of Manitou Springs history a lifelong quest. After six years of the Manitou Springs Historical Preservation Commission, she has served as the president of the Historic Manitou Springs Incorporated, an educational nonprofit and sheriff of the the Posse. And she's going to talk to us today on the water cure by Dr. Creighton.
1: Thank you. Yes, and you're going to hear a lot of familiar names that other people have already mentioned as well. So this is Taking the Manitou Cure with Dr. Basil Creighton. And uh, as you can see, even the burros in town were boosters of the water cure. But don't worry, no animals were harmed in the taking of this photograph. It was painted onto the uh, negative. So this is Dr. Basil Bernard Creighton. He was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, the home of the Sisters of Charity. And they'll make a... A uh, appearance in this story in 1864, and uh, he was uh, one of ten children, six of whom survived, all boys. Um, one stayed in Ohio, one went to sea, and the others all came to Manitou with tuberculosis. So um, he attended a medical College in Ohio. And then he contracted tuberculosis like his brothers when he was serving as an intern in Cincinnati. So he came and joined his brother Ed and Joe and Tom, all of which had come to Manitou to take the cure and it had cured them. Uh, It cured uh, Ed so well that he decided to set up a saloon. And um, because even though he was also a doctor, he felt that the liquid cure was maybe uh, better than the water cure the alcohol cure. So um, as soon as he arrived in Colorado Springs, into Manitou Springs, he served as a camp physician at Cripple Creek. He heard about the gold rush, and he ran up there. And he worked with the Sisters of Charity at their hospital in Cripple Creek. Um, Came back to Manitou after the excitement was over there, I guess, in 1895, and set up a practice with the Sisters of Charity at Miramont Castle, or rather, at Montcalm Sanitarium. And um, practiced for many, many years. Um, if you want to see his operating table and his medical instruments, they're at South Park City. They've been donated up there in Fair Play. Um, so he finally retired at the age of 71 in 1935. Uh, And then passed away in 1964, just a month, a month or two short, of 102 years old. And in between that retirement and his death, he also learned to speak Russian, and he learned Braille, and he wrote a lot of articles. Um, So why are we talking about Dr. Basil B. Creighton today? He's not as famous as many of the other physicians. He's another character from Manitou, like Dr. Anderson. Um, Well, he wasn't the best doctor in town. He wasn't necessarily the most popular doctor in town, but he was the most passionate doctor in town, and he was passionate for the two Ws, walking and water. And he felt that if you came to Manitou with tuberculosis and you drank enough water from the mineral springs and you walked to all those mineral springs, you would be cured and go back to wherever you came from. So this is Dr. Creighton's office, his private office, Of course, he wasn't uh, the only doctor in town. I want to tell you a few little things about a few of the other doctors. They're all characters. Um, Probably the most popular doctor in town was Dr. Henry M. Ogilby, and he and Dr. Creighton practiced at the same time, Um, and his office looked almost exactly like that. Another great doctor who came to town was Dr. Isaac Davis, who'd also fought the Civil War, was injured, became a doctor because of it, and came to Manitou and homesteaded. His first patient accidentally died of a morphine overdose, so he decided that he was going to go into the pharmacy business. Much fewer lawsuits that way. So he opened a pharmacy, and uh, he had the market cornered because if he couldn't cure you with the drugs, he was also the town undertaker, and he owned the cemetery. So you see doctors were very practical in Manitou. Uh, There was also Dr. Harriet Leonard, who was a female doctor, and she ran the bathhouse, probably the second bathhouse after Dr. Anderson, I think, ran the first bathhouse. Um, Female doctor, and we also had a female dentist, Dr. Anna Chamberlain. So Manitou was a town of doctors. But Dr. Creighton was the one who wrote the most, and he wrote a lovely, as I said before, article on the water cure of Manitou for the Chicago Medical Recorder in 1915. And so I'm going to quote from that as I go through the, uh, the aspects of Manitou's health industry. So you, you probably have a hard time seeing that, but there is a TP in the middle of that picture. Um... So to quote Dr. Creighton, drink of the bubbling water into which the great spirit Manitou had breathed the breath of life and become well. So he was giving credit to the Native Americans, who, of course, were the first ones to discover the wonderful bubbling, boiling. I guess Fonton Cabou, which is the name of, original name of Fountain Creek, was Boiling Fountain. Um, I guess uh, it used to make a wonderful rumbling noise when there were no other noises of traffic around. Um, They came to the area, and they considered it sacred. It was a perfect remedy to a tough uh, diet of dried meats and berries, and they also used to bathe in it. So they were the first practitioners of the spa culture in Manitou. And uh, this is uh, a picture of Navajo Spring. And Dr. Creighton said, these mineral waters of soda and iron, effervescing with life and sparkle, Mark, Manitou is a place to regain the loss of that most precious of all gifts, health. And everybody tended to agree with him. Uh, all the explorers, except for Zebulon Montgomery Pike, who never quite made it to the springs of Manitou, he was a little obsessed with the mountain. Um, they all came through, they had all heard about the springs, uh, Fremont, the long expedition. Dr. Edwin James wrote the first extensive um, report about the springs, And of course, Frederick Rexton came through here. He was so excited to drink the water that he did not drink for the entire day before he got here. And he said the water exploded in his mouth. And was so wonderful, he drank um, cup after cup. Uh, Er, Edwin James had a very interesting uh, guide. His name was Bijou. And he was one of the gentlemen who went up the peak. But Bijou told Dr. James that the Indians considered the area sacred, obviously, and there were lots of fetishes and memorials around the spring, and the French fur trappers used to take those and sell them back to the Indians. So the early uh, beginnings of the tourist trade. (laughs) Now, of course, the, the most important people for our story to discover these springs were General William Jackson Palmer and Dr. William Abraham Bell. They were in this area on a railroad survey, the railroad survey where they met and became fast friends and on the way back they decided to stop at the springs and you know General Palmer had this idea in his head, I'm going to start a railroad and go to Mexico. And they went to these springs and I love this image although they weren't quite the Victorian gentlemen at the time that they look in all their pictures, but they stripped off their clothing and skinny dipped in the spring and thought this would be a great place for a health resort. But when you look at this picture, uh, you can barely see. There's a gentleman sticking his head down to drink the water. It's not a very big area to go skinny dipping, and what I found out later is actually they sat in the creek and had the mineral water flow over them. That made a lot more sense. So they decided to found a European-style health resort at the site of the famous Mineral Springs and uh, started that officially in 1871. Palmer built an early hotel, but uh, you could see the uh, moon through the ceiling, and it wasn't very successful. They did a better job in 1872 when they actually started the town. They hired a... uh, landscape designer named John Blair and he put all of these lovely pavilions around town next to the springs that you see here. Um, This is the Manitou Soda Spring and Dr. Creighton had a comment about this. These clear sparkling waters increase appetite, improve tone, and promote functional activity, however you interpret that. (laughs) Um, This is an interesting picture. As you see, these pavilions were not placed over the springs. They were placed next to the springs because, of course, Bell and Palmer figured that tubercular patients were going to be the first uh, visitors to Manitou, which, of course, they were. And the pavilions were for resting. Um, And in this picture, you see this gentleman with all these jugs Well, you didn't have a train to Manitou in the beginning. It was six miles from Colorado Springs to Manitou Springs. They had to do it by wagon, and so a lot of entrepreneurs would bring their jugs, fill them up at the spring, take them back to Colorado Springs, and sell them, Um, which is kind of the story of Manitou Springs ever since. So this is the Ute Iron Spring Pavilion. And I use this line for this because of all the beautiful setting. This is actually very near the Cog Railroad. It, the spring is capped now. It's underneath the Iron Spring Chateau. But uh, Dr. Creighton said, hay fever, asthma, incipient, and fibroid tuberculosis are almost invariably benefited, relieved, and frequently cured, as it was in his case. And uh, I'm going to show this picture because this is the 1870s. It was a pastoral. Wonderful place. So the cure wasn't just the water; it was also coming to this this beautiful area, experiencing the sunshine, and uh, actually walking to the spring. This is up Rexton Avenue. It's quite a hike. So I think the exercise benefited people just as much as the water, although don't tell Dr. Creighton that. Um, and in this picture, you can see the tourists. Uh, you can see that. They sold them the water. This spring was actually uh, owned by a Dr. Strickland who had built the Iron Springs Hotel, the first one, and he caused a great ruckus because the springs had always been free, and they still are. He was the only one who charged, but he had a pretty good crowd, and they even had a little tiny curio shop inside that building. (laughs) Never let it be said, they didn't make money when they could. Now this is the wonderful 1885 Manitou Soda Spring Pavilion. This would be where the spa building is today. The Manitou Soda Spring was the spring to go and see and be seen by all the other people who came to town. You know, a lot of people would come from the same state, and so they'd actually get together with their neighbors and meet at the Manitou Soda. Dr. Creighton had to say, the waters of medicinal spring supplemented by pure water and good food, dry, cool air and sunshine, prime in quality as in quantity and ever at your service. Now, in 1915, they finally figured out that maybe passing around the cup, which they did, um, was a bad idea, especially with so many people with tuberculosis, which, which they had finally established was a communi- communicable disease. <laughs> so they used to have soda dippers inside this building. They would take glasses four at a time in a little metal rack, and they would dip it into the spring, hardly ever losing a glass, and hand them out. Um, and then they would have to wash those glasses in uh, an acid wash about every couple of hours. So I'm not quite sure where the improvement was there, as far as passing on germs, but that was the law. This is a picture, this is a great picture. It actually shows the first bathhouse. If you see the wooden fence and the spring pavilion, that is Shoshone Spring. And that's just been restored in the last couple of years. Um, The white building to the left of that is the first bottling plant in town. And hiding down by the creek behind that, that low slung building, that is the first bathhouse. So that would be where Dr. Anderson practiced. Um, And of course, looming up behind the wonderful thing that it is, is the Cliff House Hotel, which I'm rather fond of. Um, So Dr. Creighton had to say, carbonic acid soda baths have been found efficacious for their general tonic and in limited Action, and I'm not going to go any further with that. But that's what Manitou Springs waters were famous for, especially the Iron Springs. Um, and actually, the this is the only spring with a fence around it. And you're going, why did they put a fence around it? Well, this spring is very close to Manitou Avenue. It's on the street. And all of the wildlife, which we still have in town, used to love this spring. They used to come down and drink this spring, and they left little packages and gifts for the tourists, and that put them off. So they built a fence around it so that they couldn't do that anymore. Um, Now, Dr. Creighton had to say about bottling, Manitou water has the unique distinction of being bottled with its own natural carbonic acid gas, which is what gives it the bubbles. It's basically natural carbon dioxide. And this is a picture of a brochure of the Manitou bathhouse, I mean, bottling plant. Um, This was built in 1889, 1890 by Jerome Wheeler of Aspen fame, and he was also the president of Macy's. But he lived in Manitou, in the summers at least, and he decided that he was going to promote Manitou Manitou mineral water like it had never been promoted before. And he had this building built. He bought all the springs from General Palmer. He um, employed half the town, and they shipped Manitou mineral water all over the country. Unfortunately, that building is gone now. And to help promote that, they had this wonderful color chromolithograph poster printed up, which is also in the display outside. Um, It says, Manitou table water, all use it. End of discussion. And all of these little pictures and vignettes around the the all-important bottle are places where you will drink the water. Uh, Dr. Creighton's uh, describing the effect of the water said, lagging corp... Corpuscles are soon revived, tired brains are rested, the rest of worry vanishes like a myth. I like that. And um, so in honor of his uh, wonderful achievements, Jerome Wheeler donated the Wheeler Town Clock, which uh, we still have and love. It's traditionally been said that the statue was Hygia, the goddess, and pardon my Greek, uh, goddess of uh, public health. I recently found out that um, it's actually a copy of the goddess Hebe, who was the uh, goddess of eternal youth, um, and that it was made by a company in New York called J.L. Mott and Company, Um, not the story that we were all told when I moved to town, that Jerome Wheeler went to Italy and saw it and had it reproduced. That's much more romantic. This is a picture of the Ute Chief Magnetic Mineral Water Spring. Uh, This is another bottling plant. No therapeutic waters known have a greater efficacy in disorders of the stomach as diuretics or for the relief of diabetes. So it pretty much cured everything. Another thing that they were very impressed with at the time because of the discovery of radioactivity. The highly mineralized springs are strongly impregnated with carbonic acid gas. Both gases and waters are radioactive to a high degree, says Dr. Creighton. Very excited about that. And this is the water that was mixed, uh, they mixed juices with uh, the supposed radioactive water called Radio Fizz here in Kara Springs. This is the second bathhouse, much grander. This is where Dr. Harriet Leonard worked, and you could use the plunge pool or individual baths, but a Denver reporter said that if you wanted to use a plunge, you had to wear your corsets, men and women. That was the proper way to do it. Let's see. Dr. Creighton said about Manitou, a model village, picturesque, odd in its windings and turns, and it hasn't changed, has it? You can still wind your way and get lost. But this is downtown Manitou Springs, circa 1891, when it was pretty much at its height. He also said about where you would stay in Manitou, numbers of excellent hotels and attractive, though moderately priced boarding houses, be sure to emphasize moderately priced, homes in plenty and cottages galore, each one the abode of open hospitality. Well, these folks felt like really being out in the open, so they brought their own kitchen, they were own tent. It was considered part of the cure for tuberculosis, as much fresh air as you could get. This is the Ohio house. It was a boarding house. And you know, when they had overflow, they just put up the tents. And this was actually owned by Mrs. Galbraith, who also ran a photography studio in town. So women kind of ran the town, at least in actuality. Um here's an example of cottages galore and I wanted to show you this one. You can't read the sign, but at the bottom, well there's a lot of signs, but at the bottom of one of those signs it says renting cottages, no tubercular people. Eventually, Manitou decided they were too good for the tuberculosis patients and only wanted the tourists. Um, also excellent hotels. These are trading cards from trade cards from the Barker House and the Cliff House. Although the Barker house never looked like that. <laughs> that was what Mr. Barker wanted it to look like. But you can see they both use the springs as part of their um, advertising. This is the Montcalm Sanitarium and Miramont Castle. Montcalm's up on the top left. Miramont's in the middle. Um, Dr. Creighton was the consulting physician here for 17 years with the Sisters of Charity. Um, This is a borough party heading up to uh, the top of Pikes Peak, and they've stopped in front of the Ruxton House Hotel. And Dr. Creighton has to say, to this magnet as to Mecca they come, 100,000 strong tourist health seeker vacationist. Eventually the vacationists took over the health seekers, Um, but that's okay because Manitou could um, make money off of them as well. And Ute Iron Spring Pavilion and Photography Studio, Uh, Dr. Creighton had to say, with music at the parks, dancing at the hotels, and every form of amusement, Manitou in summer is vivacious with enjoyment. So was the Manitou cure real? Well, sure it was. It was real. The water was good for you. And, uh, And also it has a very high level of lithium. So if it's not good for you, you're still enjoying it. So, as I say, find your bliss like these two lovely gentlemen here playing their guitars, sitting at their tent cottage. And as Dr. Creighton said, from her treasure box Manitou, where all the springs of Pikes Peak region are, lays her riches before you and bids you welcome. Thank you.
0: Our next our presenters, actually, it's Ed and Nancy Bathke, who resided in Colorado for 47 years, 36 years as residents of Manitou Springs, and presently in Douglas County. Ed is a mathematician and retired computer analyst. Nancy is a retired elementary school teacher. They are co-authors of the West and Postage Stamps and have written articles published in Brand Books and Round, Roundup Magazine. They have done various, uh, including writing for our last uh, 206 symposium. So, Ed and Nancy.
2: Thank you, Cal. Out of the Wild West. When one first visualizes the great America
0: the great American
2: frontier, uh, first he considers the rather uh, individualistic fur trappers and mountain men, and then the intrepid explorers, and then the exciting stories of cowboys and Indians. But. By the 1890s, the great historian Frederick Turner said, the American frontier is closed, it's over, there's no more. But it's not the end of the story for the development of the American West. Uh, The early 20th century uh, saw other distinct eras, the continuation of homesteading in Colorado, uh, followed by the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl and American farmer, or the Colorado farmers coping with that, and then the heroic events of World War II. Uh, Following victory in World War II, many of the veterans who had, who were looking for opportunities and building a new life had been exposed to the West during their military days. This resulted in another era uh, or phase in the growth of the American West see if this one works. There we go. One such veteran coming to Colorado Springs at the close of the war was a young doctor from Ohio, Lester L. Williams. Years later, Lester became our family doctor. Our first impression was a visit to his office at 10 East Monument Street, and it was a 1920s bungalow that gave sort of a homey atmosphere. And one would walk in and sit down in the waiting room, and then he would look around, and he'd see large old photos of Colorado such as Cripple Creek and Victor and taken by the famous pioneer photographer William H. Jackson and even look on the walls and there would be a piece of Colorado sheet music, the Antlers Waltz after the famous hotel in Colorado Springs. And this was not the normal artwork of a typical doctor's office. One didn't have to read the old magazines he could read the walls, <laughs> and it was a Western historian's delight. Now, Dr. West, Dr. Williams' demeanor with his patients was also that of a physician of years ago. He'd greet you warmly, and he'd hold your mm-hmm. hand, and it, it wasn't just friendship. You know, he's doing more than that. He's probably checking your temperature, your pulse, your fingernails, and finding out what else in the way of vital signs and physical conditions and then he'd engage you in conversation, putting you at ease all the time, playing with the blood pressure instrument, and then when the relaxed subject least suspected it, he'd get his reading. The conversation seemed perhaps congenial, but one could picture in his head perhaps an operations flow chart as he's going down the paths, asking questions, and based on a response, of that particular option, going on to the next choice, and finally arriving at a diagnosis. But he also went the extra mile for his hospital patients. Getting a room changed, for example, or in some cases even being ready to give a a person-to-person blood transfusion. And unheard of today, periodically, even making a house call. Truly a most caring doctor who put his patients first. Let's take a brief look at the background of this physician of the mid-20th century. He was born in Mount Vernon, Ohio in 1914 of Pioneer Stock. Les attended Western Reserve University and received his M.D. there in 1940. In 1939, he married Alice Weech of Ontario, Canada. World War II would require the services of the young new doctor, and he served in the Army Medical Corps for four years, attaining the rank of Captain, Flight Surgeon, and receiving the Bronze Star and Air Medal. And then Les became a part of post-war growth of the American West, arriving in Colorado Springs in 1946. Although his specialty was urology, he devoted much of his practice to general medicine as a family doctor. Now our presentation of his career will attempt to show his wide range of accomplishments in supposedly unrelated fields. As a physician, he was very busy, being on the staffs of Penrose Memorial and St. Francis Hospitals and becoming Chief of Staff at Memorial. He was at one time President of the El Paso County Medical Society and also President of the Colorado Springs Clinical uh, Club. As he approached retirement age, normal retirement age, let's say, his office load diminished. So for his retirement, about 1982, he devoted more time to the medical needs of the city's nursing homes. The the Union Printers Home, established in 1892 as a retirement facility for retired printers, had been transformed into a general nursing home. He he graciously provided me with a tour of the historic structure and all the time, of course, he was greeting all the residents, his patients, whom he knew very well. As many as nine area nursing homes were visited by Les and he tended to these residents' medical needs. He was a member of the board of directors of Silver Key for three years and of of Sunny Rest for seventeen years. In appreciation, Dr. Williams was recognized for his outstanding medical service to the senior community. In 1985, the highest award of the Colorado Health Association, Health Care Association, the Vesta Bowden Award, was presented to Dr. Lester Williams. Additionally, at the Antlers Hotel in 1993, at an award dinner, Les was honored by the Springs Village Care Center and the Bethesda Care Center. Now we segue from the first field of accomplishment of Les Williams, that of a healer, to his role as a humanitarian. Actually, the interwoven aspects of his various activities will begin to show. <coughs> Excuse me. The Williams family had been long-time pioneers in Ohio, and in previous generations there had been a background in, in firefighting. Thus, thus Les, was an, Les was an avid fire buff. You know, and some buffs collect firefighting memorabilia, some chase fires, others research the history of firefighting, or maybe the equipment development, fire engines, everybody loves a fire engine. Les did it all, and more, in that his interest in firefighting was noticed by the Colorado Springs Fire Chief, Fred Lausch at the time, who submitted Les's name to the Colorado Springs City Council for appointment as a fire department physician. This was in 1953, and the city council passed a special ordinance naming Les to the position, but without any pay or any designated responsibilities. But Les regularly purchased a fire red car, and the Colorado Springs Fire Department provided a red light, typical of then. You know them all. We call them gumball machines. And that was for the roof of his car. And then he had other things, such as radio communications in his... uh, doctor's office, in his home, and his car, so that he would always be on call. He'd always be ready to go to any fire anywhere in Colorado Springs. Uh, there he would not only attend to the medical needs of any firefighters, but any civilians in the vicinity who needed help. And then if nobody needed medical attention, he'd go in and help fight the fire. The extent of Dr. Williams' involvement in firefighting operations is vividly illustrated by the activities on April 10, 1956. An army of firefighters responded to a blaze at the Bates Store in the 100 block of East Pikes Peak Avenue. Les donned his helmet and wagon coat and went in the building to help fight the fire. Someone cut a hole in the second floor and oxygen fed the flames and it caused an explosion. Six people, including Dr. Williams, were blown down the 24-step flight of stairs. I kept thinking, later Lest recalls, at the bottom of the steps was a double door. What Are we going to hit that door? The st- As it turns out, the door was already in the middle of the street. <laughs> Lest's face was burned, but he didn't blink. He treated the other five firefighters, who were hospitalized because of their injuries. Seventy firemen, five engine companies, two aerial trucks fought the three-arm blaze that went out of control for four and a half hours. The damage was estimated at over half a million dollars, and at that time, that was a record for the city of Colorado Springs for a fire loss. Since 1946, Les had gone to just about every major fire in Colorado Springs as a volunteer. He was on call for 44 years. In 1989 the fire department appointed a recognition and awards committee. The first person they chose to honor was Les. In January 1990 then Chief Roman proclaimed Dr. Williams as honorary chief and even assigned them a reserve parking spot at fire station number one. The department had a few honorary members previously but never an honorary chief designated by five trumpets. The Colorado Springs Fire Department erected a $13.5 million new headquarters and fire operations training center at the corner of Printers Parkway and Airport Road and named it the Lester L. Williams Fire Department Complex. In 2000, a 2,500 square foot museum was located in the foyer of this building and was dedicated as the Dr. Lester L. Williams Fire Museum. Les had amassed a large collection of firefighting memorabilia. Much of it originated in the Colorado Springs Fire Department or from family members of those who had served in the department. But it even included such associated items as the toy fire trucks and equipment that his two sons, Clinton and Jeff, had played with. He rescued and restored an ancient hose cart from the early days of Colorado Springs firefighting. Many other artifacts he collected over many years, such as the Colonial Fire Insurance, residential plaques, or pioneer equipment that had been used by volunteer and professional firefighters everywhere. He was concerned about firefighter safety and gathered related information and equipment. He was a proponent of the use of self-contained breathing apparatus shown here. He presented a paper, Hazard of Smoke, at the Memphis Fire Department Instructors Conference in 1959. In 1969, Les presented a paper, A Medical Doctor Views the Fire Service at the National Fire Protection Association Conference in Denver. But the medical and community service by Les was more than just performance. Uh, He studied and documented the activities and history in these fields. That brings us to the third facet of this multi-talented position. Les came from a background steeped in pioneer uh, tradition. Ancestor John Williams was born in 1802 in Huntingdon County, uh, Pennsylvania. And then Harris Cotton was in Knox County, Ohio in 1814 and members of the Williams family tree were Ohioans from that date on. His namesake was an, unct- was an uncle, Lester L. Williams, born in 1858, who obtained an MD from the Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia in 1882 and then in 1884 married Laura Cotton. Coincidentally, the forebearer then of the, who provided the name for less also provided him with a profession. His interest in the history of his family is highlighted by the existence of a pamphlet in the Penrose Public Library local history collection titled An Account of the Cotton, and a few other family names, in Williams' families of Mount Vernon, Ohio. Now the life of a young doctor is, is very stressful and time-consuming. While maintaining a full medical practice and feeding his fire buff passion by so actively participating in all the Colorado Springs Fire Department uh, well as as their surgeon plus raising a family of two energetic young boys Les still managed to fit in the pursuit of historical endeavors. Although relative newcomers to the region in December 1949 Les and his wife Alice became members of the Ghost Town Club a small local study group Uh, for Western history and he presented a paper to them on three Silverton railroads. But, well fitting in monthly meetings proved too difficult and his membership had to be relinquished. Other historical groups beckoned however and in the 1950's Dr. Williams was the president of the Historical Society of the Pikes Peak Region. Les joined the Denver Posse of the Westerners being elected to the central membership group, the Posse in 1954 and serving as its sheriff, that is its president, in 1971. He was a founding member and the second sheriff in 1978 of the Colorado Springs chapter of this international group of historians, the Pikes Peak Posse of the Westerners. There are many who are students and devotees of the history of the American West, but Less was much more than a history buff in that he went further and accomplished so much in the field of Western history. Considering his accomplishments in the field of medicine and firefighting, it's only natural that the historic effort would somehow be tied to these primary endeavors. For example, the objectives of the Clinical Club, founded in 1912, were, quote, scientific advancement, social intercourse, and the development of proficiency in extemporaneous speaking. So local doctors regularly presented medical cases and treatment for benefit of members, often using unusual situations, clever diagnoses, skilled surgeries, or the latest in therapy. Less participated, but in rather unsuspected ways. One program involved less reporting on the innovative medical treatment of a patient whose neck had been broken in a riding accident, but who was treated for 868 days, keeping him alive with the extraordinary care the patient turned out to be General Palmer, the founder of Colorado Springs. And there was just a little criticism among the clinical club of presenting a case that really had occurred six years before Les was even born. <laughs> but now in another instance, Less detailed an autopsy that when completed turned out to be Old Mose, the great grizzly bear that had ravaged the region of Black Mountain and South Park, destroying animals and killing people in the 1880s. The medical audience did feel they'd been fooled just a little bit. However, both historical treatises were presented to other historical groups as well, such as the Denver and Colorado Springs Westerners and what published in their publications. The humorous side of Les was well displayed and he often told about these programs with a twinkle in his eye. Then in 1982 Dr. Williams authored a 40-page historical booklet, The Colorado Springs Clinical Club, which was published by Filter Press of Palmer Lake. Jumping from historical research in the medical field, it is noted that over the years, Dr. Williams had written numerous articles, papers, and books about firefighting. Among these were a history of the Volunteer Fire Department of Colorado Springs, 1872 to 1894, and horse-drawn days of the Fire Department, 1894 to 1917. And both articles were published by the Denver Westerners, not only in their monthly magazine, The Roundup, but their annual hardbound volume of Western historical research, the Brand Book. Then the great historical fires of the Pikes Peak region. First, the Cripple Creek conflagration, shown here, which occurred in 1896. And the Antlers conflagration of 1898, destroying the important landmark hotel in Colorado Springs. And these were meticulously researched. Les not only located and collected important records and photographs, but then carefully drew exacting maps of the fires, not only the Cripple Creek and the one displayed is that of the Antlers fire. These articles were not only published by the Westerners, but were significant enough studies that they were republished as standalone booklets. As a culmination of all this work of Pikes Peak Region firefighting, in 1992 Les published a book fighting fires in Colorado Springs. Personal experiences as well as family led to more historical research. As a youngster, Les visited his uncle C.N. Cotton in Gallup, New Mexico. Cotton, it turns out, was an Indian trader who made a success of Hubble's trading post in Ganado, Arizona, and later he was a businessman in Gallup and there he dealt in Indian goods and possessed a large warehouse of choice Navajo blankets. In 1989, Les authored a book titled C.N. Cotton and Navajo Blankets. Les Williams passed away at his home on August 30th, 1996. His memorial services included about 1,000 firefighters of the Pikes Peak region, plus former medical associations associates, friends, and family. The casket arrived by horse-drawn hose wagon, a wagon that Les himself had helped restore. It passed under the American flag held by two ladder trucks. Bagpipers played amazing grace. A 21-gun salute was fired, and the, quote, last alarm toll was rung. Seven tolls of a bell that has become a tradition at firefighters' funerals. A primary goal of this presentation was to focus on the important era of the development of the Pikes Peak region, that of post-World War II. Our study follows the career of a typical doctor entering private practice upon return from service in World War II. Of course, our personal knowledge and individual did play a role in the selection. We would like travelers cruising on Printers Parkway and passing the building, the Lester L. Williams Fire Department complex, to be aware of its namesake. He was truly a healer, a a humanitarian, and a historian. Thank you.
0: Once again, I'd ask our presenters to come up, two over there and perhaps two over here. And while they're gathering, I'm just going to say, wow. Uh, Who knew that there was so much of interest in our region? So...
1: I was just wondering, there's a lot of people that uh, were diagnosed with TB. Some of them came out here, one of them was my great-grandfather. But some of them were cured. Now, does that mean that they were misdiagnosed? Because we know the cure for that wasn't, you know, the cure wasn't found till penicillin. But I just wanted your opinion on that. Was the diagnosis wrong and those people lived or did all people die? or?
3: I've got an opinion on that. Uh, one of the, uh, the treatments for tuberculosis was uh, good food and plenty of it, regular hours, plenty of sleep, and rest. I, you know, what else do you need? You're almost bound to get well, or at least uh, it happened for many people. Uh, yeah, I think some of them were misdiagnosed, but I think some of them uh, uh, benefited greatly from uh, the regimen.
1: In my great grandfather's case, he came out here and he walked 20 miles in the mountains a day, and that's what cured him. So it wasn't the rest. <laughs> so Dr. Treaton...
3: there, there. Uh, what was the uh, what was the sanatorium that was up there on uh, Shelton Shelton uh, Road? Oh,
2: that was Nordrack Ranch.
3: Yeah, that's uh, it. The Nordrack Ranch.
4: Yeah,
2: that's being uh, documented in. Uh, in a Pikespeak uh, Westerners publication just about to be published, uh, article by Lois Crouch. There oh. they f- fed them not only the was, was the fresh air, but so much food, so much milk, r- eggs, uh, that they used to refer to it as puker's paradise.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, they also had the problem that uh, uh, many of the people who were at the Nordruck Ranch uh, resented greatly Uh, the exercise that they had to uh, undergo at the ranch and uh, I forget what the name was that they called uh, the doctor but it was uh, they were very unhappy with the doctor insisting on all that exercise so your great great grandfather uh, must have benefited from it but some surely hated it
1: yes I would say Dr. Creighton's treatment worked then walking and maybe some water and um Definitely the fresh air and the good food and the dry air. You know, so many people came from human climates. We don't hear, but a lot of people did come here and they did die. Yeah. Yes, actually... Sort
0: of... Okay, this is for Deborah Harrison or anyone else. You mentioned about lithium in one of the waters, and we know that uh, lithium in, is in Librium that we've used for many years for depression. Now. Did uh, someone just find out that that one spring, I think that one in the middle going up toward Iron Springs on the left has a large amount of lithium in it. Now, did someone find that people who drunk from this who had depression got better? Or did they analyze it uh, after they found out that lithium helped uh, people with depression?
1: Actually, you're in luck. I just joined the Mineral Springs Foundation board and they just did a uh, survey of all of the springs, a new mineral survey. They do them every 10 years for the last 100 and some odd years. And they have found that actually that spring you're talking about, which is Twin Spring, has one of the lowest levels of lithium. (laughs) But everybody called it the lithium spring because previously it was the only spring checked for lithium. Actually, the Shoshone has the highest level of lithium. And all of the springs have it. That it helped
0: depression. What about finding out... did? people drink
1: from these springs, uh, and then they
0: felt their depression got better, or did they find out about lithium afterwards, and then... Oh, I
1: think the lithium's a modern thing, yeah, I mean, well, they didn't test for we're it. Well, we're talking about Manitou Springs, come on, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that anybody's done a scientific study of the effect of lithium in the water in Manitou, and how it affects you, but we're all happy, so... <laughs> My my question is, uh, if, you know, Dr. Creighton lived to be 102 almost, what was the um, normal uh, age of death for people who had TB at that same time? I don't really know that. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, um, it probably was pretty low, I would think. I mean, many people were cured, but it did damage your lungs. I'm sure it would have shortened your lifespan but I don't know that for scientific fact. Dr. Creighton had good genes. Yeah. <laughs> all of his family lived to be at a great age.
0: Um, I had a question about Dr. Losi. From the description that you gave, it sounded like all she did was deliver babies, which would really make her more of a midwife than a doctor. Did she do other stuff too?
4: That's a good question. Uh, I didn't go into all the particulars, Uh, they're all in the biography I wrote. She was a general practitioner, but she found that the need was for uh, babies to be delivered and especially for a woman to attend a a client. Uh, They required her services to help deliver babies. And also she considered herself a gynecologist uh, and she was able to function in that a uh, particular scenario very well, so it kind of happened that way, although she was a general practitioner.
0: I wonder how much radon there is in Coors beer and <laughs> <laughs> and Manitou water. I asked the health department, they didn't know.
1: There's not that much radiation in the water. Don't worry, you can still drink it.
3: <laughs>
0: I had another question for Ms.
2: Losi. Um, did you get a feel for how remunerative the practice uh, dr ford 's practice was? Uh, did it really support her? did uh, she depend on her her husband
4: 's uh- Another good question <laughs> that i uh, didn 't get to with the, you know just trying to give you an overview of her, her life uh, no it didn 't pay very well at all. In fact, a lot of her uh, patients were unable to pay her which was okay. She was there to help people. So they would pay her by giving her handcrafted items or bags of groceries, or they would approach her on the street when their baby had grown into a teenager and say, I owe you $20 for delivering my baby. Here it is. <laughs> so it wasn't a huge issue with her. And also, young people would line up on her porch. Uh, to talk to her about helping them with their education, that people would notice there are some very healthy people lined up on your porch. Why are they lined up there? And she would never say. She was very low-key about the whole thing, but any money she had, she was very happy to lend to young people to further their education. And, of course, she had the help of uh, her her two husbands and also taking in a boarder to help run her house and that sort of thing. hope that answers that.